We live in a society where achievement is very important. Obviously, we see it in the Olympic Games at the moment, the race to try to be first to get the gold, or the silver, or the bronze, or whatever. Achievement matters a lot. And it does in work as well, that our role is to achieve whatever we're meant to be doing at work, to succeed. We are measured by what we do and what we achieve. And as we do that, there is, I suppose, if we have authority, then with authority comes status. Our status in some way is linked to the role we have in life, our jobs, our authority, and so on. But there is an alternative way. Jesus models a different way. He sees what we are is much more important than what we do. He does not um, judge us according to what we do, but what we are, what our character is like. The contrast between how Jesus esteems us and how the world esteems us could not be greater. And we need to operate in our lives, in our work, in our church, in the same way. We need to operate in a way where our character is the key and that we evaluate people according to their character and not according to their achievements. Jesus models a new way for us, encouraging us to be servants to others. Can we follow that way? It is totally different to the way the world will encourage us. And hopefully as we go through, you'll see something more about this aspect of what Jesus is encouraging us to do. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Jesus had already indicated to the disciples that he was going to die. He had indicated, and there was a sense that as he went up to Jerusalem, I suppose there was a sense of foreboding. The disciples were pretty slow on the uptake to work out what was going on, but they sensed that Jesus was set to go forward into a new stage in which suffering was going to be part of it. And it says, therefore, that when Jesus was going on that way, the disciples were astonished. Why would Jesus want to do that? Why would he want to go to the very place where he is going to suffer and possibly die? And those who are following the wider circle of disciples around were afraid. They sensed that something uncomfortable was on the cards. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the high priests, sorry, to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus knew what was in store for him. He knew that he was being called to lay down his life for mankind. And he chooses, therefore, in the full knowledge that he was going to suffer and die, he chooses to go to Jerusalem. 
He knew what that meant. He knew the result of going to Jerusalem. He knew it would mean he would suffer and die. But he chose to go. He knew that the religious leaders would hand him over to the Gentile authorities. He knew he would be condemned to death. He would suffer. He would be mocked. He would be spat upon. He would be flogged. And he would be killed. A simple summary of the Gospel in one sense. How Jesus suffered and died for us. But notice how it goes on. Not only did he, was he condemned and flogged and beaten and killed, but he also was going to rise again. That is also an essential part of the basics of the Gospel. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. If Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins but did not rise, we would not be able to rise up to new life with God. Jesus suffered and died and rose again. And here, Jesus is laying out for his disciples what he is going to do. But still, they prove not very rapid at picking it up. But why did he choose? Why did he choose to go to Jerusalem knowing that he would die, knowing that he would suffer in such terrible ways? He knew it was his Father's will. He was on earth to do the will of his Father and to model that for us. He loved his people. He loved the people despite the fact that they, like us, rejected so readily the Lord and go our own way so readily. Even while we were yet sinners, he chose to die for us. He loved us. That is why he chose to go through with the suffering and death on the cross. Because he loved us enough to put us above himself. He saw what we needed. We needed him to die on the cross because otherwise there was no forgiveness of sins. And he did what was important what was necessary for us. He did what was best for us. He put us before himself. And therefore he chose to suffer and die on the cross. He was therefore going to experience not honour, but being despised. A possible successful ministry was replaced by death and rejection. That was what he decided to do. That is what he concluded he would do. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I want a stupid question. I mean, that's the type of thing that a small child will come. Will you do anything that you ask me to? I mean, I ask you to do, expecting the answer yes. And of course, you can never say yes, because you never know what they're going to ask. So Jesus carries it off and and basically says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other your left in your glory. James and John were um, brothers and were two of the closest of the disciples to Jesus. Um, James, John and Peter basically are identified as the three that were particularly close. And James and John are wanting to make sure that their closeness to Jesus now is going to be manifested in closeness in later times. They sense there is a change taking place. 
The kingdom is going to move into a new phase. Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem and suffering and so on. Now's the time to get in their request. And they do. Can we sit at your right and your left hand? They are seeing that their closeness to Jesus now should guarantee them high status in eternity. Verse 39. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. You can drink, sorry, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? Jesus immediately shows that the basis on which they will have a high position in eternity is not to do with whether they were close to Jesus in this world. The fact they were close to Jesus is not enough. And he then starts to unpack about suffering. He says, can you do that? Can you drink the cup um, uh, from which I will drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? So what are those images about? Because that will then help us to understand what's going on. Well, the cup in the Old Testament has two different ways it can get taken. You can drink from the cup of blessing. doesn't look like that in this case. Or you can drink from the cup of suffering. That's the more usual use. And particularly the idea of judgment for sin. So the idea here is that Jesus is to drink from a cup of suffering which has the connotation in it of judgment for sin. The gospel is unpacking as he is speaking. He's already said he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And now you find why he is going to suffer. He is suffering because in some way he is carrying the judgment for sin. Now, And we see this type of idea of cup coming up again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The cup of suffering, of the cross, and all that that entails. So Jesus will drink a cup of suffering for the salvation of mankind. He says, Can you drink it? And the way that is framed in the Greek makes it clear the answer is no. You cannot drink from this cup. And then he goes on, can you be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? And baptism, you're looking back to the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Baptism basically means to get inundated, immersed, and all those sorts of things. Absolutely smothered and buried in it. But what is it? Well, again, I believe It's something to do with suffering. Why? Well, what was John's baptism? John's baptism was repentance from sin. What is repentance? It's a 180 degree turn. So if I'm going this way, and I repent, there I am. I've repented. I now turn and go in the other direction. So when you repent, you turn from sin, but you turn to something. You turn towards God, a commitment to God. So Jesus, when he went through the baptism, was not repenting of sin, he was without sin. But he was affirming his turning towards God, or continuing, shall we say, to be turned towards God. His total commitment to God and his agenda. And of course, that included suffering and dying for the sins of the world. 
So for Jesus, when he's talking about being baptized with a baptism, he was baptized with, that is referring of that total commitment to God's way, and particularly to the suffering that comes as part of it. And obviously the disciples can't participate in the sufferings of Jesus in a way that actually brings forgiveness of sins. So he says, can you drink the cup? Can you be baptised? To which the answer is no, or should be. But that's not the answer that he gets from um, the disciples, from John and James. Their answer in verse 39, we can, they answered. I suspect that's probably, if you want, either optimism, idealism, or um, just, um, well, a bit over the top probably as to what they could actually deliver at the end of the day because the disciples did not show themselves very good at delivering total commitment to Jesus when the chips were down. But it's interesting then what Jesus does when he responds. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus, if you want, now changes tack in his um, discussion. And he is pointing out that yes, they will suffer. They will actually go through, in fact, they will probably actually go through death because um, certainly tradition has it that most of the disciples were martyred. But certainly they will suffer. He's saying, you will suffer. But that isn't enough. That doesn't guarantee you the high place of status. All are going to suffer. If you want, it's part of the package that is part of following Jesus. We follow Jesus. We participate in his sufferings. There is a sense in which we are going the way Jesus goes and we can expect suffering as part of the package. Sometimes um, we as Christians seem to feel that Christians should have a suffering-free life, but that is not what God says in his word. He says that we are going to be privileged to share in the sufferings of Christ. And here we get that same tone coming through, that they will drink from his cup, they will be baptised with his baptism, they will experience suffering for Jesus. And it says in verse uh, 40, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And here Jesus is submitting to his Father in heaven. He is choosing to be obedient to him and to submit to him and modelling for those around how total commitment and submission is appropriate. It is not for me to choose. It is left to the Father in heaven. When he came to earth, he laid aside his majesty and basically took on uh, the role of, wait, well, he became fully man and took on the role of a servant. The interesting thing is, he doesn't go on to say, I mean, the question that's been asked basically is, um, how can I sit at your right and left hand? I want to sit at your right and left hand. How can I have a high status in eternity? Jesus dodges that question very effectively. He doesn't say what the answer is. He said what the answer is not. Being close to Jesus is not enough to have a high status in heaven. Suffering is fully to be expected 
But even that is not enough to ensure that you will have a high status in heaven. But he doesn't go on to tell you what will. He just says, that's up to the Father in heaven. That's, that's his area. To be thinking on, how can I get the sort of the top place, if you want. It's the wrong way of thinking. It's the wrong target. So Jesus, therefore, um, backtracks from that and just avoids answering that question. The important thing is to keep our eyes on Jesus. To be obeying him and loving him. And to be loving others. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbours as ourselves. That's where we focus. And then the Lord will sort out the reward bit in his own time. The issue of status now or in eternity is not an issue to be focusing on. That is God's area and we need to leave it to him. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with Jesus and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. The other ten listening into this aren't chuffed with what they hear. These two disciples that are particularly close to Jesus are trying to, if you want, noble the key positions before the other disciples can get in on the act. They're not chuffed. They sense that Jesus has parried off their request, and so they're now piling in with, if you want, their resentment against the two. But as you notice what happens afterwards, Jesus does not say, yes, I agree with the ten, the two are in trouble. He basically gives an alternative to all of them. They are all thinking in terms of how can they get better status and so on. And Jesus is just saying, you've got the wrong idea. The focus is not is who can be highest but who can be lowest. So he starts by looking at the way that the world operates in terms of its methods of leadership. Whoever is in authority has power, has control. They have status, and probably they have wealth as well. Authority leads to power and control and status and wealth. Therefore, people seek after authority because then they can have all these other things too. And in those days, if somebody was, I mean, a soldier or whatever, somebody in authority, their, their role was to do what was necessary for the empire or for the organization. Take it to now for the organization we work for. The manager's role is often to to achieve their objectives that the organization has set, to maximize profit or to um, maximize production or whatever it may happen to be. And the, the nature is, of the, the type of way of working with objectives and so on, is that the individual can, if you're not careful, become a mere tool. The individuals that work for you become the tools you have in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Now, objectives are great and fine. There's no problem with that. But so long as the attitude is right behind it. And Jesus here is saying the way it naturally occurs is those in authority lord it over those under them. And basically those under them are merely tools to achieve their ends. Those who are leaders will therefore get more benefits. They are seen as more important. Everything comes in their direction. And they look down on those under them and basics do not treat them um, well. 
And of course, nowadays, still, in an organization, a top person is key. That's why big businesses will pay huge amounts of money for their top executives, because it makes a difference. If you get the right guy at the top, then the organization works better. If you have the right pastor of a church, that church will tend to work well. If you get one that is not appropriate, then you're in difficulties. But Jesus is trying to turn things upside down and says, don't just esteem what's high up, what is well gifted, what's in authority. Don't esteem that, but esteem, well, he's going to be talking about those that serve and so on. He's about to turn everything upside down. Verse 43. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Not to be served, but to serve. If you want status, then you've got to be a servant. If you want to be up here, the way to that is you come from down below. The ones who come with humility will be exalted. Those who are exalted will be humbled by the Lord. Now, this is not just for leaders. This is for all of us. Are we characterized by a servant approach that we are those that serve rather than those who will be served? The key here is attitude. What is our attitude? Is our attitude that we want to do what is best for others? that we want to serve others and contribute to them. If that is our attitude, we will find our actions will follow. Our actions will be servant um, actions. But the key is that our attitude is our priority right, that we seek what is best for others rather than what is best for ourselves. Indeed, it talks here... um, You must be servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It's not just that we serve those who are leaders. It's not just that we serve and try to do the best for those that are the key folk around us, or are wealthy, or even just those who are Christians. We are to be slaves of all. Jesus went to those that often were looked down on, those that were unlovely in society. And people didn't think that was good. But Jesus was modelling how to act. We need to be ready to serve all because God is concerned and loves all. Those who are dependent on drink and drugs, yes, they are worthy of our time, they are worthy of our help, They are worthy of our love to do what is best for them. Even criminals, even those who have done terrible things, are worthy in the sense that they are loved by Jesus. God values each one highly, whether they are lovely or whether they are not lovely, including those who are undeserving or unlovely. All of them are special to God. That's why Jesus died. Because actually all of us are pretty unlovely. And yet Jesus came and died for us. He showed us how to do it. And we need to be ready to serve those not just who are high status people in this world, 
but those who may be, if you want, in more menial jobs at work. I still remember a Christian organization I had something to do with, and there were a couple of members of staff there who seemed to have selective eyes. And when somebody who was cleaning the place went past them, it's like their eyes went straight past them. It's like, it's like they didn't recognize them. That's, how, that's horrible. I mean, not only would they presumably object if their offices weren't cleaned at the end of the day, but that isn't the point. The point is that those people are lovely and precious to Jesus. And if they were the only ones, I believe that Jesus would have died for them too. And so we need to model in the way that we act an acceptance, a recognition, a valuing of everybody, those that are loved by others and those that are not. We need to esteem everybody equally. And when we do, then we act in that way. Our lives are an expression of that. Now, that is radically different to the world's approach. The world does not say that. It says, put your time and energy in those that are strategic and important and so on. Jesus turns it upside down and says, all are important. And he seeks to serve others. He puts others first. I want to give a couple of examples that go both ways, one of which um, is an example where um, I think at the end of the day I managed to do what it was saying there, and one rather more recent one where unfortunately it goes the other way. I remember um, when I was um, working in industry, I hired a guy, uh, was meant to be developing sort of um, weekly and monthly reports for the business, and basically he did not deliver. And I spent ages trying to help him and encourage him and show him how to do it and all those sorts of things and it just did not, did not work. And I hung on for ages in one sense but the decision eventually did have to come and I had to, I had to basically um, sack him at the end of the day. Now, the process that we went through, right through the thing, in terms of trying to support him, in trying to help him through that process where he was leaving the firm and so on, meant that afterwards, the next Christmas, I got a Christmas card from him, which was really encouraging, having, I mean, I was the guy that sacked him. And that is an example, he picked up the fact that he was valuable. Others around me said, I don't know why you didn't do it earlier. It's because I was idealistic. I sort of hoped there was a way through. But unfortunately, and that's, always not, that's not always the picture, Let's take it a bit up to date. This week, I am preaching. Next week, I don't know who is preaching in this church. Now, if there's a real servant-heartedness, then my motivation for preaching is purely that you might hear God's word and respond to it and be blessed. So it makes no difference whether the Lord blesses this week or next week. That's not the way I feel about it, though. I really want the Lord to bless this week. My prayers focus on the Lord blessing this week. I have to say that blessings on next week, I'll leave that for somebody else. Do you see, it's a problem. It's exactly the same thing. That idea of the servant-heartedness, that what I do is to serve those around. That's not what's happening in that, or it's only happening in part. We're on a journey. God is helping us to become more servant-hearted as we go through. Verse 45. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Sorry, done that. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see what servanthood is like by what Jesus did. What did he do? Because it says he came to serve. Well, we've seen earlier in the passage, he chose to suffer. He knew what was best for mankind. He chose to do that rather than what was best for him. He could have enjoyed all the blessings of glory at the right hand of his Father. Instead, he became mankind. He suffered and died for us. He chose to go to Jerusalem. He chose to precipitate his suffering and death because he loved us and because he knew that we needed salvation. What an incredible God we have. He did what was best for us. He put us first. And he modelled, therefore, the way that servanthood works. What is servanthood? It's putting the needs of others before our own. It is doing what is best for them. Doing what is needful for them. He, therefore, sacrifices position and status. He embraced rejection. He embraced humiliation. He embraced a shortened ministry. Why? Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And he chose to do those things that were in the interests and needs of others around him. That was what he came to do. He had a total priority in his life to do what was best for others. Actually, it's one step up from love your neighbour as yourself. This is do what is best for others. Serve others. And what did, why did he do it? It arose from his commitment to God and his love of others. You see, God loves the world. Jesus, therefore, came and died for our sins. Why? Because of his love for all of us. We now become Christians. We're empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We then love others. We then serve others. We, if you want, should be a reflection of God's priorities and attitudes in our hearts. And what a wonderful finish the passage. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We've already seen that he is choosing to suffer and die. We have seen something of the reason for that, that it is um, in some way taking the judgment for sin and now he says he's come as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment to buy somebody back. It's particularly, let's say, um, where a war has taken place and slaves have been taken. You pay a ransom to get some of those slaves back. Or somebody has been imprisoned because of something they want and a payment is made if you want to allow them to be released. Jesus is the payment. Jesus is the payment for our release from the bondage of, presumably, sin. So there, wrapped up in one word, is the essence of what Jesus did. Jesus paid the price. He is the ransom for sin. God couldn't just wash away and just pretend my sins didn't happen. They did happen. God provides the means by which those sins, the, ju the judgments can be fully paid for. He is the ransom, the payment for our sins. And that is the ultimate expression of being a servant. He was willing to suffer and die for us. 
even those who are those of us who are unlovely and those of us who are so rebellious against God. He was willing to do that. So what is servanthood? It's basically putting um, I say it's an attitude at the end of the day. It's an attitude. It's a motivation. It's a priority to put the needs of others before ourselves. It's a matter of, in one sense, seeking to do the best for others. An esteem for everybody, which we then act out. If you're in leadership, it's a priority, I suppose, for those in your care. But for all of us, we have a call to be servants. And Jesus acted in a way that undermined his own status. He, you remember the instance of the foot washing? He chose to wash the feet of his disciples, totally undoing the sort of um, the role he had as a leader. He was willing to serve and do what is menial. And you know how it is at work. There will be some people who are not willing to do the things below themselves and something needs to be done. They will get somebody else to do it. There are others who will always roll their sleeves up and get involved. That is the type of thing that should be um, natural to us. To be willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved in even the menial things. Jesus was with foot, foot washing. So the challenge to all of us is that we should act as servants to others. But the call is especially strong for leaders because leaders are called to lead and yet to serve, and there's a tussle in there. So I want to just reflect for a moment on what servanthood is not, or rather particularly what servant leadership is not. It is not pretending that we're not in leadership. It is not pretending that we're not in leadership and sort of, just sort of, almost pulling back from it. And it isn't either avoiding decisions. I mean, Look what Jesus did. Jesus, when he had um, James and John coming to him, didn't say, well, let's hang on, let's have a sort of a discussion of this and a democratic vote as to whether they get the places or not. He was a leader. He said, no, this is what's happening as opposed to that. It didn't mean that automatically there was democratic rule or whatever it happened to be. Leaders can be leaders in the sense of, um, of making decisions perfectly well whilst being a servant. That's what Jesus did. It doesn't mean saying no to being a leader. If you are invited to be a leader, it's not just a matter of, oh, no, 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 I'm to be a servant instead of a leader. Well, it's good that you're not racing to be a leader. You just can't wait to have all that authority. But actually, your best way of serving others may be to be a leader. That may be where your gifts lie. And so it's inappropriate just to sort of push it away. Likewise, Servant leadership is not pretending to be humble um, and always sort of pretending that you have no gifts or abilities or anything like that. I mean, that just gets unreal. It is a matter, though, of choosing to serve the Lord. It's also not a matter of totally flogging yourself to death in the sense of working so hard serving everyone else that actually what happens is that overall what you provide to others gets worse and worse. Jesus spent time with his father in prayer. Jesus did eat. Jesus did sleep. It is important that certain things are that we meet in our own selves that we can be effective in helping others. So where have we gone? Jesus suffered and died for us. 
And in Mark's Gospel, in this chapter, that is being laid out before us. And then, of course, he rose again. Why did he do that? Well, it was judgment for sin. Jesus took on himself the penalty of sin. He drank the cup of suffering with the connotation of judgment for sin. He was the ransom for each one of us. He paid the price that my sins deserved. He suffered because of what I had done. And it was his choice that he did that. He chose to suffer. He chose to die. It didn't just happen to him. He chose to allow it to happen because that was what was necessary in order to meet the needs that we had. Jesus, through what he did, modelled servanthood. He showed us what servanthood should be like. He did what was best for others. That was his priority. And and he did that for everyone, including those that were unlovely. In fact, especially for the unlovely. That was where Jesus' ministry focused, much to the chagrin of the Pharisees and others. So the choice now remains to us. Will we? Will we take on the attitude of a servant? Will we seek to meet the needs of others? Will we seek to follow our Lord who came not to be served, but to serve. But be aware when you do this, that it will be totally countercultural. Our culture is one where authority means you're the big boss person, and you are in authority, and you have status, and probably finances, and all sorts of things. If you take this route, it's a very strange route from the world's point of view. The funny thing is, though, it actually works from the world's point of view. Because if you, let's say, are in management in an industry or something like that, and you value those who work for you, and you act as a servant to them, trying, if you want, to grow them and make them stronger and more effective and so on, you will actually have much higher motivated staff working for you. So the very obedience to the commands that Jesus gives here, not to be served but to serve, actually works not only in Christian life and in churches, but in secular life likewise. We should be characterized by how we handle those who work for us or alongside us. That we have the attitude of a servant, that they sense that we are, if you want, working with them, helping and strengthening them, rather than waiting if you want to hit them hard as soon as something goes pear-shaped. The choice is there. Will we go the Lord's way? It's not easy but with God's help, we can do it. Let's pray.